0: Talking books on South 106 to 108. I'd be very interested in his insights into uh, politics because he lived through, uh, um, you know, quite a bit of turmoil. He said our, our modern weapons were like giving uh, advanced, um, giving weapons to, to savages giving, like, machine guns to savages. It was terrible that human beings would would do this, uh, uh, would use our ingenuity, and then uh, use it in such terrible ways. He worked very hard in the 1930s to help get refugees out of Germany, not just famous professors, but ordinary people, school teachers, uh, anybody who he, who's, uh, he got the information about. He spent quite a bit of his uh, income to, to do that. And I think his insights, and, and in the 1950s he helped... Uh, Push some of the early uh, movements to control and limit, limit nuclear weapons. So, having seen all that, he dealt with prime ministers and presidents and stuff. He slept over in the White House and had a, a, a thoughtful dinner with Franklin Roosevelt. I'd be very interested in his views about politics now. He would be saddened at what uh, America has recently done, but he might be hopeful and might be able to suggest good ways to go forward about how you could bring out the best parts of all of us, something that I believe he was always looking for for himself.
1: What is the nature of genius and do we all have a blind spot? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with futurist, business advisor and writer David Bodanis, whose latest book, Einstein's Greatest Mistake, The Life of a Flawed Genius, has just been published by Little Brown, where David writes... Einstein always believed that there was an invisible frame to our universe waiting to be found. He had always suspected, moreover, that this cosmic architecture would be very simple and very exact and very clear. So how did Einstein's big ideas and philosophy of science change the way we see the world? And what can we learn from his life?
0: I'm David Bodanis. I'm a recovering academic and I'm proud to say that I'm from a city uh, which is Chicago, which has never voted for Donald Trump. We're Obama's home city. So I'm very proud of that. I've lived in uh, France for a decade, and I've lived in uh, London for several more decades. Um, I write a little bit about everything. I wrote a romantic uh, history a few years ago. I've written about uh, science. I'm writing a book about good moral behavior now. And I have a special love for Einstein, and I've written two books on Albert Einstein.
1: I love that, David, uh, recovering academic. I suppose it means I might be somewhat gentle with you, does it? Uh,
0: Yes, uh, it was. I I can't say it was a traumatic time in my life. It was a very pleasant time in my life. Um, I was looking to get married. I just turned 30 and I've been looking in the London media circles where people were really charming and really quick and really untrustworthy and kind of shallow. So I thought, let me meet a nice academic. So I thought, well, to do that, I need to become an academic myself. So uh, I, I wrote a, a book that got me a position a, a teaching at Oxford of well places. And uh, I, I met a nice lady. That particular relationship didn't work out, but we got two lovely children from it.
1: Well, aren't you the tactical player? I might throw you a big uh, wide open question to kick things off. Is there a relationship, do you think, between hubris and genius? Do you think that in some way it could be argued that they're, they are in
0: relationship? Um, sometimes uh, hubris, and, uh, be associated with genius tasks that are very difficult we have to find ways of pushing or pulling ourselves towards them so some boxers will appear very arrogant that's because they know it's scary going to a ring with a big strong man who's going to try to uh, hit you so they they'll overdo they'll sort of pump up their own confidence which can seem very arrogant uh, from outside a certain number of scientists uh, do the same thing uh, many however uh, don't do that and don't find it necessary uh, Einstein was in that second category because instead of him needing to be pushed and force himself, he actually had a pool. He believed that there was a waiting vision of beautiful, clear principles in the, in the world. It was unclear if they were created by God or just by he, – he referred to what he called the old one, this structure of forces that we get glimpses of around us. And he really wanted to see that. And that was enough of a pool. He was the, uh, the gentlest, most humble of men.
1: Yeah, he really believed in simplicity and you really convey that in in the biography. And it's it's something that we might uh, talk a little bit more about later. I'm just wondering, as I was progressing through the biography, I thought to myself, is it possible that genius reaches a peak of sorts, that it's an intellectual pattern or patterning in lives from these unbelievably talented people?
0: Do you mean uh, that there's a certain age in which people reach a peak?
1: Yeah, or even within it. It could be that they actually, you know, reach the kind of the, the high point of their lives intellectually at 25, 27. There's always this point, And then from there, there's, a, I suppose, a tipping point, if you will.
0: Mm. Uh, it, it turns out in different fields, uh, people on average tend to peak at different ages. So uh, lyric poetry or a song lyrics and a certain number sort of pop songs, that seems to be especially good from the mid or late teens Uh, up until one's uh, 20s, uh, well into the 20s. Think of many uh, of the great songwriters around. They might still be uh, performing, but they tend to do songs when they were younger. Something was more vivid, uh, direct for them. Uh, In general, within the sciences, it's the more theoretical sciences that people, on average, uh, peak at a younger age. You can imagine a prodigy in chess or in mathematics. You can't really imagine a prodigy in history because they wouldn't have the, uh, the sensitive understanding. They might be able to recite lots of words and numbers, but clearly they couldn't feel for, uh, for events as much as an older person could. Uh, so the more theoretical fields like mathematics, on average, tend to peak younger. Physics and then chemistry tend to uh, uh, often come later. People often reach their peak in their 30s or, or, or so. And then biology, especially traditional biology, which is a, a slightly more subtle field, people can peak later. Now, the nit- curious thing is those are just averages, and there's been individual variation that's really been huge. Einstein was at his intellectual peak, from about 25 to 45, which is a good 20-year period. And because he was so uh, spectacular, really at the level of Leonardo da Vinci or Mozart, he was at his peak not just in one field, but in a huge range of fields, from the study of the ultra-small and quantum mechanics to the study of the ultra-large, the whole shape of the uh, universe, and all sorts of other things along the way. One of the uh, poignant things that I uh, talk about in the book Einstein's Greatest Mistake is that uh, when he um, ended up uh, being excluded from the mainstream of physics, it wasn't because uh, his brain had uh, gone down. He was one of those lucky people whose brain doesn't fade at a young age. Uh, even in his mid-50s, uh, close to 60, he came up with the idea behind uh, quantum computers, which is only now in the uh, 21st century uh, being developed. So he really was quite extraordinary. For him, what put Einstein aside was more of a, uh, an emotional resistance to the direction in which science was going.
1: Yeah, and he clearly was no robot. He had a tremendous flair for flirting with women, and he attracted lots of uh, extraordinary women into his life and, and so on. But he also was a gifted violinist, wasn't he?
0: Uh, yeah, Einstein, uh, because we know photographs of Einstein as the, uh, uh, either that, that silly man sticking his tongue out in one photograph, or as the uh, uh, strange man with the white hair sticking in all directions, we forget that he was actually a real human being. The best way to think of him is uh, sort of he had, he had typical uh, German-Jewish uh, humor and artistic uh, sensibilities. So he loved Mozart, and he, uh, and he sort of liked Bach, except when Bach was too cold. He, he was really was, was a lovely violinist. And in the period before uh, recorded music was popular, he was often invited into people's homes to help in string quartets and stuff. Uh, even as an old man in the 70s, he played with some visiting um, uh, quartets in, uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. And although his fingers were getting a bit stiffer, they... They admired how, what a beautiful tone and what real heart he had. Uh, again, uh, from his youth to an old man, he loved noodling away on the piano, just improvising um, all sorts of different genres. Music meant a lot to him. It reminded him of, of deep warmth and connection with people. That was something he always sought. But it also curiously reminded him of, of an abstract universe, not a cold universe, but the sort of meaning you can get just from the very austere, clean lines of the structure of the universe. That's why, although he, with Bach, he had mixed feelings. Some of Bach he just found too cold, it was mechanical. Some of it gave a hint of, almost like the Godhead, a hint of something utterly magnificent around us, which we could but glimpse.
1: But when we think of Einstein and, you know, this great genius, you don't necessarily think of this man serenading his women and joyfully playing to his children. It's not a typical image that we have of Einstein. Sure, it's not.
0: Uh, One of the uh, um, things I really enjoyed in, in writing Einstein's Greatest Mistake was the chance to get his personality across. Many people know uh, a few anecdotes about Einstein, and they forget the real person. Uh, when he was young, in his early 20s, he married a woman he had loved at university, and they were sort of bohemian and countercultural and stuff like that. And they didn't have any money, uh, or they had very little money, but it never really put Einstein down. So he used to, he couldn't afford to buy nice toys for his kids. He had, uh, he, they raised two boys. Uh, so he used to get uh, matchboxes, and uh, like fishing line or cotton thread, and he would make uh, cable cars. He was living in Switzerland, so cable cars what people liked. He'd make cable cars for the kids to play with, and his expenditures were basically nothing. He had a really good attitude that, that way.
1: He was very close to his sister, Maja, all through his life, and they collaborated, they inspired each other, they would fun. They seemed to really um, energise each other, didn't they?
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, he and maya they didn't uh, work in the same field. She was into uh, literature and languages, Uh, I think she did a a doctorate, I'm not sure, in in, uh, uh, Italian, Latin, and and French, uh, stuff like that. Um, One time when he was first teaching and he didn't have enough students, she dutifully sat in his lecture halls at a university in Switzerland, understanding not a word of what her uh, um, big brother was saying, but uh, being there just to give him moral support. They had a great fondness from the time they were uh, little kids uh, until uh, old age. She had a sort of a stroke when she was old. And um, uh, she moved into Einstein's house in Princeton where he ended up. And he would trudge back from the university campus every day and read to her just the way they had in um, 1880s uh, um, Germany. It's very sweet.
1: You describe the biography in your introductions as a double biography. And you, you also say it's a story of a fallible genius, but also the story of his mistakes, how they began, grew and locked in so deeply that even a man as wise as Einstein was unable to work himself free. And it got me thinking that, don't we all just have moments of great triumph and grace and also of failure?
0: Uh, yes, uh, we, um, uh, the question is, uh, how do we respond to failure? Uh, Einstein used to say that he wasn't smarter than other people. He he was a good student. He, well, he wasn't a terrible student. Uh, the story that he was a terrible student, I've been able to date back at least to 1977, and the magnificent film Rocky, written by Sylvester Stallone. And Stallone is a a, a fine enough actor, but he's really not considered a, a specialist in the Einstein archives. So in that film, it helped push the story that Einstein had been a bad student. In fact, he he was a decent sort of A- minus or B-plus student. But he could be persistent, as he, uh, his sister Maya, who, he, who wrote one of the few uh, accurate memoirs or trustworthy memoirs about his childhood, pointed out that when they were little, if they made card castles and put a layer of flat cards on top and built another layer on top, if it went up three or four layers, if a gust of wind blew into the room and knocked it over, her brother Albert would take a deep breath, and he would just quietly build it up again. So he was really persistent. Now, persistence is wonderful if you're pushing in the right direction. Think if you're on a, a trip driving with uh, somebody near to you, and um, or dear to you, and um, it's difficult, but they're, they're, they're just really persistent. They're pushing along, and that's great. They're helping you. Now suppose you're on a trip, and you're convinced of that the other person's going in the wrong direction. Then their persistence really becomes a terrible thing. And Einstein's persistence was really a double-edged sword. When he was going in the right direction, it was magnificent. It took him eight years to come up with one of his uh, best ideas in relativity, which is a long time to stay focused. But then when he decided that um, physics was going in the wrong direction and he wanted to uh, shift it, he stuck out with his fresh views for about 20 or 30 years, even in isolation. He was convinced that when physics was going the wrong way, well, in the past, mankind has often gone in the wrong direction and a few decent souls have uh, have kept the faith. He thought he could be like that.
1: He was very stubborn when you think about it, wasn't he?
0: Uh, Yes. And, And again, stubborn is, you know, we often conjugate. We say, I'm persistent, you're stubborn, you know, they are close-minded. You know, we, we, we shifted around. So when it was aimed in the right direction, it was a very good thing.
1: But I find it so surprising that here we have one of the greatest minds of the 20th century and he clearly was so gifted in so many areas of his life and he was a great teacher as well. But how he collaborated with different types of research or research that was maybe furthering on from the questions that he was asking, he limited himself enormously. And it's so surprising considering the depth of his creativity in one way that he, his vision was so stifled in another.
0: Uh, yes. Uh, one of Einstein's contemporaries said that thinkers are either golfers or tennis players. Uh, a golfer is somebody who needs quiet time to work out things on their own when you hit the golf ball. A tennis player, when they have a problem, they need somebody else around to bounce ideas back and forth with. Einstein was a mixture of both. He very much was a tennis player. He would usually have one good colleague, and he would really spend time with a colleague, and they'd work on ideas together. Then he'd become a golfer and have some quiet time to, uh, to put it together. The sad thing is, later in his life, he was sort of forced to be a golfer, and the buzz of ideas bouncing back and forth, which he had needed, to slid away. From Einstein's perspective, he wasn't actually uh, narrow-minded, and he wasn't uh, stuck in his ways. Rather, he was holding out for something decent. I can give an, an example uh, now. At the moment, uh, Donald Trump is kind of mixed popularity in America. I think the majority of Americans are pretty much against him. There's a, a large minority who support him, perhaps uh, 30%. Now suppose things were different. Suppose we lived in a slightly different world where you lived in America, say, and 98 or 99 percent of the people were all for him and thought he was great, and you would think my country's gone insane, the way that sensitive people thought that uh, uh, Germany in the 1930s had gone insane. So you would try to hold out, and people would say, "Come on, join the crowd, go with it, go go along with all this," and you say, "No, no, that's wrong. Even though it's popular, I'm holding to something which I know is, is a much deeper truth, and I hope that eventually." Society will recover and come back to my side. And that's sort of how Einstein was. He thought that science had broken open in a good way with Isaac Newton a few hundred years before by seeing that uh, everything could be really clear and understandable. That's his famous line God does not play dice with the universe. That if there were uncertainties, if we looked in the microscope at the tiniest level and things where there's uh, quantum fluctuations and electrons are bouncing around in an unclear way, he thought, Well, if it's unclear, it's simply because we don't have sufficiently uh, accurate tools to see the details, or our mathematics isn't advanced enough to see the underlying patterns of what's going on. But if we have better tools and better understanding, we'll see that the deity or whatever force there is in the universe has created a clear, crisp universe for us to understand. So he felt he was just holding out for sanity.
1: You mentioned Spinoza, the great um, Dutch uh, Jewish philosopher, and what I found really interesting about that was that there was this great commonality between Einstein and Spinoza, who was, you know, who was born three hundred years before, and that how Einstein got encouragement from his ideas. And it's interesting to think how one famous historical figure can impact on another, and this pattern within, isn't it?
0: Uh, Sure. So uh, Einstein um, uh, loved uh, philosophy. Sometimes you read um, scientists or historians of science who are very against philosophy. And if you want to rebut them, you can say, but Einstein gained a lot from the philosophers. So he loved uh, David Hume and uh, and Kant uh, very much. And uh, Spinoza he especially admired. Spinoza from the 1600s. He was one of those Jewish people from originally a Spanish family. They were kicked out of uh, Spain because of... uh, um, a catholic anti-jewish persecution and ended up in uh in, in amsterdam uh, in the netherlands and spinoza was just a very kind man he worked i think as a lens grinder in microscopes and uh, um, other things like that in his lifetime and he was he was just a decent uh, calm thinker he believed in um a certain notion of the deity which is which is one that i think a lot of people are drawn to today it was einstein's view also you can imagine religious views as being on a spectrum uh, On one side is uh, extreme atheism, sort of like uh, Dawkins, that it's all entirely false. On another side, another extreme, is the belief in the literal truth of of every word of the uh, various divine books and stuff. Um, So that would be, um, uh, you know, say some of the fundamentalists in America. But there's a large area in between, and Einstein was was at that level. So he didn't, uh, he was against atheism. He thought it was very unscientific. How could you be so sure? But he didn't believe in the uh, the literal uh, truths in the Bible. So, for example, he didn't believe that, that Moses received uh, divine tablets from God on Mount Sinai. He thought that Moses was a very wise man, and there's a great wisdom in the Ten Commandments, which would behoove us to listen to. Uh, but in that realm in between, Einstein thought, well, you might not have an interventionist deity, but something, some force has set up this clarity we see in the universe, that there's repeating non-random structures around. Gravity works in a certain way, stars course in a certain form. The universe was created in a certain way rather than another way. Why is that? What's going on to make these invisible patterns be there? And that notion, that sort of pantheism, Einstein got very much from Spinoza. So he looked back in time and he thought, yeah, there was a fellow thinker. He also knew that Spinoza had believed in science at a period of time when science was really just getting going. And for quite a while, people didn't believe in the 1600s that there could be clear causality behind things. And so Einstein knew that Spinoza had been unpopular. But if you wait a generation or two, the the underlying truth uh, came out again. So Einstein thought that that was going to be his fate.
1: But clearly, David, he, you know, science gave him his own personal truths. And, you know, as he said earlier, he, he you knew the relationship between the simplicity and the beauty of it all. That's where he found his salvation and comfort. But he didn't, um, you know, he, he engaged with lots of different theologians and read a lot of broad based writers and, as you say, philosophers. He met Martin Buber from time to time and he also um, had a lot of time and space in his company and had dinner with Carl Jung.
0: Uh, yes, uh, uh, Buber w- was a nice man. Um, they, 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 it doesn't seem that they had um, uh, a deep intellectual relationship. It turns out they liked the Ellery Queen uh, mystery novels and thrillers. They talked about that in the 1950s, and they had uh, similar tastes in music. Uh, uh, Jung, uh, Einstein, met when he was young, uh, when he, I think when he first moved to Zurich in the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, Jung w- w- was an unpleasant man. He, uh, later life, famously became a terrible anti-Semite. And he was very uh, stuck in his uh, views. He was sort of uh, dogmatic and and not quite logical. So the the families didn't really get on. In Zurich, however, Einstein did make good friends with another man, one of the men, whose names I can't remember right now, who helped create emergency medicine, like uh, emergency rooms and things like that. And it was to that friend that Einstein made a beautiful um, remark in 1914. He couldn't quite grasp the details that he wanted to find in understanding how the universe worked, but he felt he was really close. In fact, we know he's about a year away from his final discovery. And he said, I feel, I feel that I'm seeing the tail of the lion, but I can't make out the body of the lion, and yet I know it exists. So what Einstein meant was, I have a few equation, equations that show a little bit about how the universe works. They're not quite complete. I feel that there's this vast, deep pattern, this throbbing intellectual pattern. I can't quite see all of that. I'm just getting glimpses. But from these glimpses, I believe that this deeper thing exists. And that's what drove Einstein for a long time.
1: Do you think we can compare him to Isaac Newton? Like, do you think if you got a, a load of science types in a room and, you know, you, you could, th- you know, throw them a lifeline from history, if we look at how we've evolved today and the progresses in technology and how we understand things, who ultimately had the greatest impact?
0: Um, in terms of um, uh, breakthroughs and ideas, uh, Newton and, uh, and Einstein are similar. Uh, each opened up a brand new field. Uh, Newton opened a door away from... Um, uh, so to say medieval mysticism and into this crisp, clear scientific and technological world that has led to things like the iPhone and stuff like that. Uh, Newton's personality was, it wasn't as unpleasant as he's often described, mm-hmm. but he wasn't as warm and jokey and friendly as Einstein. But what he did is he opened a, a door to a room that we'd only had hints of before. And that room is all the modern science that controls us. In that sense, Einstein was similar. He too opened a door which led to this whole understanding of uh, relativity, which, which, which I talk about in the book. And it's a fresh vision of the universe. It's a, it was an unexpected doorway, and there's enormous things there. At the moment, we don't have uh, many technologies from it. Our GPS uh, satellite systems uh, that uh, give us uh, detailed information about where we are, that depends on relativity, but that's one of the few. At the moment, we don't use black holes for travel through the galaxy. I have no idea if in centuries we'll be able to do that.
1: But do you think that Einstein's theory of relativity was in, in ways, you know, one of the highest achievements of human thought? Like if we look at the, the most impactful, because it's hard to imagine not having it.
0: Yeah, um, I suppose I would make a difference between a, a high achievement of thought and the impact, the practical impact. So Einstein's work, which I describe in the book, really was uh, terrific. It's um, as beautiful as the, the, the best works of Mozart. And uh, as succinct and uh, insightful as as anything of Newton, it's really one of the the works of one of the three or four supreme geniuses of all time, Uh, you know, Da Vinci, Mozart, Einstein, Newton, something like that. I I used to give a course uh, or give talks on what I called really interesting dead white men.